We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. We are turning again to the book of Haggai. I mentioned last time that I was intending to end our present journey through this book. And so I think after today, when I come again, I'll have some other portion to focus on. But as for today, we are here with Haggai and just some of the things that we've said before, we will say it again, that we are looking at a book of scripture, one small section that was made available to a specific set of people a long time ago approximately 520 B.C. And here we are paying attention to it and understanding that God has a purpose for us in considering what is here. And we can gather that from the book itself. I was fascinated by some of the occurrences in the book And the book says the word of the Lord. And as you read through, you see that over and over and over again. So if we understand that what is given here is from the Lord, then we have reason to focus our attention. We have reason to be careful about how we handle what has been said. We remember that the original audience for this book was a group of people a special group of people who had been, who had returned to Judah from captivity decades long down in Babylon. And we've also talked about and explored the reason they were there in that captivity. And as we have said, they were there because of choices that they made. Now, we're not saying they directly made the choice to be there. We're saying they made choices, but they had no control of the consequences of the choices they made. And so God responded to the choices they made. And God said to them, I sent you down there for a purpose, 
I sent you down there because you disobeyed. You decided you were going to do things a way that was different than what I told you to do. That's what God told the people. And so you chose, and now God says, and I chose. But in the midst of it all, God also said that this people, this people, as it uses this phrase here in this text, but he said, this people are still my people. I had a goal, I had a, uh, something to accomplish through them, not just for themselves, but for the world. And God says, I'm still going to accomplish that. You didn't do what you were supposed to do, and therefore, there was an interruption at the program. But not of God's program. It's just that they had a detour to get into where they needed to be. A detour. They could not derail God's plan, even if they wanted to. God says, I'm going to accomplish. We talked about Abraham before he was Abraham. And that God called this man, and God said to him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And out of the people who will come out of you, there will be blessing. Not just for them, but for the whole world, all the nations. He said, this people that I have made a people, that I forged down there in Egypt, those people are my people, a covenant people. I have made a covenant with them. And if God makes a covenant, then rest assured, what he promised he will do, whatever his purposes and his goals are, they will be accomplished. It doesn't matter who will stand in opposition to God, and many do. It doesn't matter what power or what might they may have, it's not going to be sufficient because God is God. And that's the thing that we need to continually remind ourselves of is that God is God and we are his subjects. But he loved us. Or as James, as, as John says in John chapter 3, he so loved us. And he loved those people of Israel. But they were down in captivity. And God arranged for them to be brought, to come back to the land. Their temple had been destroyed. But God said it's to be rebuilt. And God made all the provisions. He stirred up hearts and minds. We talked about that. Darius, Cyrus, stirred the minds of these people so that all the provisions were available for them and they could carry on the project to rebuild the temple and so a group of people went down and they began to lay the foundation I think they worked a couple of years on it but as we know that what they were doing when they were putting in the foundation 
was God's work. They were doing what God wanted them to do. And you know what happens when that happens. We talked about that yesterday, too, at the men's meeting. That when you focus yourself, you don't be surprised if what you're doing is what God wants you to do, there will be some opposition. Because the world in which we live is a world in which we have an adversary, a real adversary. And so we wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rules of the darkness of this age. And so that's the reality. And these people, as they sought to build a temple, faced opposition. They stopped the building project and just let it go for 14 years about. Now, that's a sad commentary if you think that the people were doing what God wanted them to do, and then they left it aside for 14 years. That's a sad commentary. But I will move on. And so they were to be focused on that building. And that was a specific focus for Haggai's message. And it talks about that in verses 1 and 4 of chapter 1, that temple. And we also said how that the people were not idle during the 14 years that they were not working on the temple. They weren't idle. They were carrying on life. Because the prophet said, you have houses to live in. Some of you have paneled houses, which means a higher standard of housing. You're all running to your own house. God says, "Why my house lies in ruins. Now, the irony of that is that God is the one who provided everything for them. All of the sustenance, everything, was dependent upon him. And yet he was the neglected one. His proper worship was treated as if it didn't matter. It could wait. And that's what the people's idea was. That's what the attitude was. They can wait. Not that it's not important, but just not now. And that's what it is. It's not time now. There will be a time, but not now. That's where they looked at it, but that wasn't God's perspective. And so if they're looking at it from a perspective that's wrong, they get the wrong result. If they're looking at it through the wrong lenses, through the wrong lens, they see the wrong picture. I remember we were kids, we would have those little glasses where you put all those things on your face and you see all these different pictures and whatnot. But what you saw in there was not the reality of what was actually in front of you. <laughs> see? And that's kind of the thing they were doing, not seeing the reality that was there. They saw something, and it looked some way to them, but that's the way they carried on. 
So as a consequence, the people suffered temporal agricultural difficulties as a result of the choices that they made. And those were not happened since. God says, this was a part of my response to what you did. You didn't do what you were supposed to do, so I just made it difficult for you to be able to have sufficient clothing. I just made it more difficult for you to have the basic things of life. All you needed to do was to keep on doing what I told you to do, but you chose not to. So I'm making life a bit more difficult for you. In other words, God said, I'm getting your attention. I'm, I'm going to get it. Just a matter of what you have to go through in order for me to get it. That's what God is saying. That's a fearful idea. We know that God can deal with us in ways that are, we wish he didn't do it that way. But sometimes he does because that's what is needed to get our attention, get us back on the path we should be on. And so God stirred up, it said here. He stirred up, he stirred up, he stirred up. Whom did he stir up? He stirred up where was Zerubbabel, the governor, the governmental leadership represented through that man. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the priest, the religious leadership through that man. And then the people themselves, that remnant, he stirred them up. So that it's like the people, you know, they have a chance now to obey. And God has stirred up their hearts. They're responding to what has been said to them. They're responding to the words of the prophet. They heard the words of God. They didn't chase Haggai out of town and say, we don't want to hear anymore from you. But they listened to him, which was a good thing. And so they were stirred. And then the people in verse number 12, it said, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. There were some people who were discouraged because they were, they had remembered the old temple and the glory and the magnificence of it and they could see what they were building. That it was by comparison was going to be an inferior structure. But God had a word of encouragement uh, for the people. And uh, he told them that they were to, uh, to be strong. And that was repeated three times, one to each of the three uh, that I identified. The governmental leader, religious leader, and the people themselves. Be strong or take courage is what God said to them uh, through this prophet there. And so these things then are God at work in the midst of the people. He has purposes to accomplish, and those indeed he will. God said to them, and I'm moving on along, I'm just kind of skipping through, I'm not reading every verse this time because I'm going to the end of it. But 
God reminded them of their time when they were in Egypt. And that had been a long time prior. But that was a part of their history. And the Egyptian experience showed that God was at work in the midst of the people when they were there. Their being in Egypt, obviously, it occurred through a different result, uh, purpose, uh, through a different uh, set of circumstances than their presence down there in Babylon. But the conditions that they had in Egypt towards the end of their sojourn were very difficult. And they had cried out to God, and God had delivered. He had answered. He had sent Moses. Go and tell that old Pharaoh to let my people go. And old Pharaoh said, okay. And then he said, oh, I changed my mind. Then he said, okay, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And then finally he said, okay, go, 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 get on out of here. And you know what? Even then, he changed his mind. He said, go get them. And then he lost all the soldiers, all the military hardware, gone, because he says, I'm going to defy this God. Well, God says, he is God. That's what God says. He is God. Well, no matter what the Pharaoh says or does. And so God said, I made a covenant with you when you came out of Egypt. And then he says, my spirit remains among you. That's in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. My spirit remains among you. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. My presence will be with you. And I will give you rest. And so God says, what you are tasked to do might be hard. It might be difficult. It might look rough. But don't look at it. Look at me. I'm with you. My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Put your dependence on me. Don't spend all your time focusing on the circumstances. And then God, it shows here, it talks about a display of God's sovereignty. And we might ask, over what is God sovereign? Over what is he sovereign? Well, the text tells us he's sovereign. And the things that he did in the past made it unmistakably clear that he is a sovereign God. He's sovereign over the material elements of the world. He's sovereign over all the people of the world. He's sovereign over all of the created beings of the world. He's sovereign over everything. And so that adversary that is ours, who is ours, God is sovereign over him. So we need not to focus our attention on him who is the adversary, but on him who is sovereign over him and concern ourselves with what he wants of us and not be beside ourselves about what the adversary might do with us or to us. We mentioned Job yesterday and how when Job was in very difficult circumstances, 
He heard some advice as to what to do about it. And people all the time are giving advice. And people are hearing advice. And people are following advice. But the problem is, I would dare venture to guess how much of the time the advice is just simply bad, wrong, leading a person to greater trouble and problem than what they started with. And so Joe's wife was not giving good wisdom to him. His, her advice was not good. She said, in the midst of all of this, you should just curse God and die. What kind of advice is that? That's not advice coming out of a godly person. That's not advice coming out of somebody who is trying to do the Lord's will and his purpose. But that was advice that Job was given. But he didn't follow that advice. So you talk like the foolish people. So he was attuned to recognize that what he heard wasn't right. That's discernment. We need that, to be able to understand. When we hear things that are just not right, to know that's not right. Why does it, how do we know it's not right? Because we have enough clarity of understanding of biblical principles to know that does not line up with it. And there are a lot of things like that. A lot of things that are popular in our world are like that. And many people have gone right along with it, taking a lock, stock, barrel to swallow the whole thing, never even recognizing that it's diametrically opposed to what God has said. That's a bad place to be in. But that's one of the reasons why we're here, so that we don't follow and be like that, trapped that way. Not to say that we don't have our misses, we do. But we keep working at it and ask for God to help. And so when God said, oh, I will shake the heaven and the earth, and he shook the heaven and the earth, he did it. He said, I did it before. I'm going to do that again. I'm getting on down to verses 6 and 7 now in chapter 2. So God said, I will fill this temple with glory. So there was going to be a magnificent glory to the temple that had not been experienced before. But God said he's going to do that. We talked about that as an eschatological future. There is a future that's coming where the kingdom of God would be on the earth in real form, not in the figment of an imagination or not in a reel that we're looking at at a movie theater, but in reality. And the Lord Christ himself would be reigning upon that throne. The disciples were concerned about what kind of position they may have in the kingdom. And God said, well, you're going to rule over the tribes. But it says that the saints are going to also reign with him. These are marvelous things, but these are future things. This book is talking about things that are future. It talks about things that were far past in the past and talks about things that were future. So that's, that's the nature of what we had here. You note that in 2.6, in chapter 2, verse 6, where it talks about where he says, once he says, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire. And so that's that future activity that's going to happen there. But one of the things that's interesting about that is, so we say, well, future. That was quoted in Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 26. So it was future to the author of Hebrews, and it's future to us. 
things that are coming, things that will be. So God's sovereignty extends without limit, and it covers all. And so when he says, I will fill this temple with glory, I want to read a portion from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60. 60, 60. Let me see if I can turn over there quickly. Because he talks about some of those things as well. And I just want to read a portion here. This is what it says in the first several verses here. Isaiah chapter 60. It said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The multitude of camels and shall cover your land, the Dramandaris and Midian, of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with a substance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roost? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish shall come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God, to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. I'll break off the reading there. But a glory, a future glory that's coming. Now we understand that you can read in certain books, commentaries, where the people don't accept the view we just espoused. And they say the future kingdom that we're talking about is not going to be there, and they have a different way of understanding it. But I think there's no really, from my perspective in a way, legitimate reason to spiritualize away the things that are so plainly and clearly stated as to what the future will hold. And so I think we're best just to take it the way it is and say God has said these things and a plain understanding of what language means would indicate that it means what it says and we can ascertain that meaning and hang on to it and say that's just the way it is and I think that it doesn't seem to fit our 
limited way of thinking. And so we'll go on there. Now, there came this issue about the transmission of holiness and unholiness. That's back in the uh, Haggai in chapter uh, 2 about transmission. Transmission of holiness and the transmission of uncleanness. And we know that in their context, we're talking about ritual uncleanness. And so what did it say? It said, well, that thing that was holy, the holy meat, just to touch it doesn't make something else holy. Those other things you could touch against it, it doesn't make it holy. But they could touch a dead body, and that makes them unclean. So the transmission of uncleanness comes just through that touch. But a transmission of holiness doesn't come that way. That's really quite a thing. So, God gave an application then, right in the text, of what they were t- t- said, what was said to them about this. And they were looking at what the law was and what God had said about these things. And so look at what he says here in verse number 14. He said, Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, after they, an- they answered, that touching and, and what the effects of touching was. And the last one was, a Touching the dead body shall be unclean. He says, So is this people, in verse 14, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. So is every work of their hands, and what they offer is unclean. So what value is it to offer an unclean thing to God? What value is there in that? Well, the answer is that there is none. And that's what he's saying to them. There is none. See, just like we read in 1 Samuel, how man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God looks at the heart. So a person can be... And so I think the idea here, the way I understood it anyway, is this. Is that essentially what he was saying then is that they can participate in the building of the temple. That's a holy activity. That's a holy thing. But it wasn't going to give them holiness. Holiness has to be from the heart within. And so they can do those things. Just like with us. I mean, we can come here and look good convince everybody that we're spiritual people who live in the way we ought to and look good to each other, you know. But that's really not what matters to God, how we look to each other. What matters to him is what he sees when he's looking. He's not looking at our outward appearance. He's looking at our hearts. And you know he's seeing. He looks and he sees, so he knows what we're all about. We may convince ourselves sometimes, deceive ourselves, but God is not deceived. And so here we go. Now, we're moving on here. So then, twice the Lord says to the people that they ought to carefully consider their ways. Carefully consider their ways. And then connected to the second one of those, in verse uh, 18, He says, consider now from this day forward, from the 
and then he says, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. So my understanding of what's going on here in this section is, is the idea that the people have come to a place of repentance in the heart. And God's going to bless them going forward. He's going to cause there to be the things that they lacked, but they have had a change of heart. And the next part there talks about the uh, shaking again and all that, what he's going to do. All these I will statements, and I see those throughout. And I went through and I, I, made, I set out the whole chapter and looked at some of the repetitious phrases. The Lord says, the Lord says, the Lord says. And then all these I will, I will, I will. And the Lord says all these things that I will do. But in as much as he said I will, he's speaking about future. And then there's an interesting note about Zerubbabel here. I found that to be quite interesting. And it talks about Zerubbabel. And there's that word of signet ring uh, connected to him. The significance of a signet ring uh, is the idea of rights and privileges or authority that comes with an office holder. And so it's referring to Zerubbabel as somebody who will be in a position like that. Now, this also has different ideas. People have different ideas as to really what this is, going, uh, actually the proper way to understand it. But it seems to indicate, now, we, we ascertain and we understand that Zerubbabel is in the Davidic line. We see him in Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1 and verse 12. And so he may have a prominent role in the millennial kingdom. See, the thing is that he's going to be resurrected. So he could be resurrected and carry out and, and be a Davidic uh, leader. But at least it gives the people hope that the covenant promise will come to be. It will be manifested just as the Lord said uh, that it would be. And so he says there in that verse 23, in that day, that day, I think I mentioned that as a technical expression, a technical phrase referring to a specific time. He said, I will make you Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you says the Lord of hosts. So however the details of that might work out, it's a wonderful thing for Zerubbabel to be told by the Lord, I have chosen you. I have chosen you. Every person who has believed on the Lord Jesus and has received eternal life have been chosen by him. What a wonderful blessing that is. So we're going to close the book of Haggai for now. And I always say this time through. Because if I sojourn much longer, I think I'll be visiting Haggai. Well, of course, I've got, I would be visiting it again probably today. <laughs> but in a way like this, like we're trying to do here, it's probably 
believe it will be a while before I try to do it again because there's so many other portions and if I get other opportunities, I probably will focus on other areas, other parts. But in any case, thank you. appreciate you hanging in there and listening and paying attention to it. Not that you listen to my voice, but that you listen to see what from his voice is the Lord's voice. Just a vessel I am supposed to be. Just a vessel fit for the master's uses of what our goal is to be. Our Father, we close now in prayer and give you thanks, Lord, for allowing us to take this journey through this book of Haggai. We ask for your blessings to be shared upon us. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, with thanksgiving. Amen.